You guys can turn to Revelation chapter 11. My name is David. I'm the pastor here. Glad y'all are with us. About an hour ago, I can't hear anymore. So if I yell, I'm not mad. I just can't hear. So bear with me. All right, we've been looking at Revelation, uh, kind of going through the book, a verse at a time. Past several weeks, just to recap, kind of give some context. Revelation 8 and 9, there are the six trumpets that are sounded, and they're all preliminary judgments. Um, the first four trumpets, they're judgments on the earth, the physical earth, and they indirectly impact people. Everyone who will be alive during that time will be impacted because we live on the earth. And so if a third of the earth is scorched, whatever that means, it's going to affect us because we live on it. The fifth and the sixth trumpet are different. They're also called the first two woes, and they're directed only at the inhabitants of the earth, so that people who are hostile to God, and they're demonically inspired. So that this is different. We haven't seen this before. The fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet are... Let, are there, Satan is involved in that. He seems to be empowering. What, the plagues are really weird. There's a plague of locusts and a plague of horsemen, and it's very difficult to understand exactly what those things mean other than that Satan is behind them, and those plagues, again, are directed only at the inhabitants of the earth. But the point or the intention is still to wake people who continue to worship demons, people continue to engage in sinful practices. Chapter 10 is a, it's an interlude before the seventh trumpet is sounded. John sees a vision of a mighty angel who has a scroll in his hand, and the scroll is unsealed. It's open. And I think it's the same scroll from chapter 5 that was in the Father's right hand. Jesus takes it from the Father. He opens the seven seals. This angel now has it, and he gives it to John and says, eat it. John eats the scroll as a way of ingesting the contents, and then he's told to proclaim what he just ate. We, we haven't gotten to see exactly what, what was on the scroll. We don't know that yet. Chapter 11 is one of the most uh, difficult chapters in Revelation to understand. Lots, there's a lot that goes into it based on kind of what you're... It's a part of a larger theological picture, and so we'll see how we land on that. You and me may disagree on a good bit of chapter 11, but I still think we'll, you'll be able to take something away from today even if you disagree, but chapter 11 is another, it's another interlude. It's another vision that John sees before that seventh trumpet is sounded, and we'll get to the seventh trumpet next week. So chapter 11, we're going to do the best we can. Again, you may disagree with me pretty strongly on some of this. I think it'll be okay. Uh, you'll still be able to pull something out at the end, I think. Okay. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Don't measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They're the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. 
But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was past. The third woe was coming soon. So this is still connected to that sixth trumpet, which is also the second woe. So what's going on here? Just broad strokes. The first thing I see is God's promise of spiritual protection for his people. We've seen this before. Chapter 7 was another one of these interludes between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. John sees a vision of an angel going around and putting a mark on the forehead of all of God's people. And that mark indicated ownership, these are God's people, and protection. I'm going to watch over them. Not physical protection, but spiritual protection. The same thing is happening here at the beginning of chapter 11. It's another promise of spiritual protection for the church, for God's people. In the Old Testament, the temple is a building. In the New Testament, the temple is the people of God. If you want to be put to sleep this afternoon, read Ezekiel 40 and 41 and 42. It's brutal. Ezekiel sees a vision, and in the vision, he's told to measure everything in the temple, everything, the door jams. It's excruciating level of detail. But what it communicates, that building is the people of God. We're the living stones that have been formed together uh, to make a house of God. So when God says to John, go and measure all of that, that's what he's saying. I I know these people. I know every square inch. I know them like the back of my hand. It's a promise of protection. And that promise of protection is really important because of everything that we read that follows in chapter 11, a time of intense persecution and extreme evil follow that promise of protection. 42 months is the same time period as 1,260 days, three and a half years. It's all the same time period. I don't take it literally, but you absolutely can. I think it's pretty dangerous to take any number in Revelation literally because so much of it is symbolic. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means I would say it's not literal. 42 months or three and a half years was shorthand for a period of intense persecution and extreme evil. It was rooted historically in a, in a three-and-a-half-year three, three time period from 167 B.C. to 164 B.C. A guy named Antiochus was a Syrian king, and he ruled over Israel at, for, several, for many, several years. And during those three years in particular, he basically made it a crime to be a Jew. He would send guys out once a month, and they would go door-to-door, and they would check, and if you had a copy of the Old Testament, they'd kill you. If you circumcised your son, they'd kill you. If you observed the Sabbath laws, they would kill you. If you worshiped in the temple, they would kill you. So for a Jew, during that time, very difficult to remain faithful to the Lord. Antiochus actually set up an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificed a pig on it. When you read in the Bible the abomination that causes desolation, that's the historical reference point. That sacrifice of a pig to Zeus in God's temple. It's a brutal time to live if you were trying to be a faithful Jew. And so, over time, 42 months, three and a half years became shorthand for a similar situation. A time of a limited time, intense persecution, extreme evil. And God has said, I'm going to protect you through that, during that time period. Then we see this picture, these two witnesses. I don't think they're actual literal people. I think those two witnesses 
I think that's a, that's a picture of the church. Why two? Deuteronomy 19 says a case uh, is, is verified. The truth of a case is known based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So there's two to confirm the truth of what they're saying. They're, um, they're lampstands, they're described as. In, in Revelation 1, John sees a vision. He sees seven lampstands, and Jesus says the lampstands are their churches. So I'm just going to carry that meaning through to chapter 11 and say these lampstands, they're, 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 they're the church. Two olive branches, that's from Zechariah 4. You can go back and read that if you want. It's another kind of, it's a prophetic picture of two people, the two leaders of of Israel at the time, a guy named Zerubbabel, who was kind of the quote-unquote king. There was a, another country that was leading it, that was, um, had Israel under its control at the time. There's two olive branches who would help restore the temple. And in Revelation, the people of God are called a kingdom and priests. So uh, to me, I see a lot of connection point there to say these two guys are not two individuals. They represent the church. I think the part that's confusing is there are two of them, but again, that idea of testimony being confirmed by two people. And we see what they're doing during these 42 months, during this time of intense persecution, during this time of extreme evil, their responsibility or our responsibility, the responsibility of the church, the people of God, is to be a faithful witness. They're wearing sackcloth. That's something that you wore during a time of grieving or mourning, and it came to be associated with repentance. These guys are styled uh, in the image of Moses and Elijah, the two most prominent Old Testament prophets. Moses turned the Nile River into blood. Moses um, released nine more plagues on Egypt. Elijah called down fire from heaven on his enemies. Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. We see the same thing from these two guys. It's, it's the church. And I don't think it's saying that the church is going to be in this posture of hostility with the world. What I see is it's God's protection of his people, as well as God working supernaturally through the church in order to draw people to himself. Again, they're wearing sackcloth. They're inviting the world to repent. They're urging the world to repent. They're inviting people into a relationship with God. That's what we're doing. That's what these two guys representing the church are doing during this time of intense persecution and extreme evil. They're calling the world to repent. And it says when their testimony is done, this beast from the abyss, we haven't seen him before, but he just appears on the scene and he overpowers and he kills them. We'll see more about the beast next week, but for now, we'll just say he's the Antichrist, a chief enemy of God who's empowered by Satan. So the response of Satan to this faithful witness of the church is to try to kill the church. And on some levels, it looks like, well, maybe he's winning. These guys, they died. He kills them. And we know throughout history, the church has taken a lot of hits. The church has been persecuted from Acts chapter 2, from its inception the church has been persecuted, at times severely so. Hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians have died because of their faith. The enemy rages against the church. God's promised spiritual protection, not physical protection. What's most interesting to me about chapter 11 is the response of the world to the faithful witness of the church. Part of it is expected. That first section we see the inhabitants of the earth. That's another way of saying people who are hostile to God. The great city, that, that's not Jerusalem. It says it's where Jesus was crucified. He was crucified. There's a lot of spiritual decay. The idea was God's going to hold back a few people. 
There's a, there's a righteous remnant. There's a, a faithful minority that God is keeping for himself who will not worship other gods, who will stay true to him. In Isaiah 6, that righteous remnant is described as a tenth, a tenth part. In 2 Kings, Elijah's kind of whining. He's saying, that God, I'm the only one who's faithful. I'm the only one who's righteous. Everybody else is worshiping other gods. And God says to, Isaiah, to Elijah, no, not so fast. There's 7,000 that I've held for myself who haven't worshiped Baal, this false god. And here we see the math is reversed. Rather than a tenth remaining faithful, rather than 7,000 remaining faithful, a small minority, a tenth are killed. 7,000 are killed. I don't think that means 90% of the world's going to be saved, although that'd be wonderful. But to me, it's one of the most, hope, one of the most hopeful passages in all of Revelation. It's this flipping of the righteous remnant from going to being this small minority who are faithful in the midst of spiritual decay and difficulty to a much larger group that at a minimum is acknowledging God. In Revelation 14, a mighty angel is given the eternal gospel and what he proclaims is fear God and give him glory, which is what these guys are doing in chapter 11. They're fearing God, they're terrified, and they're giving him glory. We can debate whether that's full-on conversion where they're following Jesus, but at a minimum, there is an openness, there's an acknowledgement of God. To me, again, one of the most hopeful passages in all of Revelation we see here in chapter 11. The faithful witness of the church is effective. What judgments could not do on their own, first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet, fourth trumpet, fifth trumpet, sixth trumpet, they didn't draw anyone to repentance. At the end of chapter 9, no one repented. They're continuing to worship demons. They're continuing to practice these sinful, uh, engage in these sinful activities. We see the faithful witness of the church, even especially in the midst of persecution, is drawing the nations to Jesus. Again, it's not 90%. The numbers are symbolic. But there's something to be said there. A large number at least acknowledging God if not turning to him in faith. Incredibly hopeful picture, and I hope both an invitation and a challenge to you and to me. We're the two witnesses. The two witnesses is that it's the faithful church. That's us. Whether we're living in in this exact time frame or not, we said we're all living in the last days. The last days were inaugurated on Pentecost 2,000 years ago. We're living in the last days. We're li- we live in the Bible Belt in 2020. We're not facing any level of persecution, abs- 100%. We're still the church who's called to be a faithful witness, and that faithful witness is effective. We've seen throughout Revelation this constant refrain, be faithful to the end, be faithful to the end. God expects us to remain committed to him regardless of the cost to ourselves. And now we see it's not just for our own spiritual well-being. It's for the spiritual well-being of others that God uses the faithfulness of his people, especially in the midst of persecution, to draw others to himself. You can look this up, christianitytoday.com, and when you're on that website, in the little search button, type in Boko Haram. They're a militant Islamic group that's terrorizing Nigeria. About six weeks ago, they kidnapped a pastor. They do this in villages all over. They kidnap Christians, and then they, they behead them. And they make videos before they do. And those videos are all intended to terrorize other people. You want it, they want to see people who are quivering and quaking and fearful and crying. And they want to 
blast those out as a way of intimidating others. And so they, they kidnap this pastor. He's also a local leader of, a, of his denomination. And this video, you can watch it. You can go to that where I just told you, ChristianityToday.com, Boko Haram. And this article will come up, and there's a, a link to a video. And in this video, people are calling him a modern-day Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you remember that story in Daniel 3, they're brought before the king Nebuchadnezzar, and they're told to bow down to this statue, or they're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace. And their response is classic. They say, King, our God can deliver us from your hand, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down. And that's what this guy says. He says, God can reunite me with my family, and I'm hoping that he does. This is my paraphrase. But even if he doesn't, if that's not what he has in mind, don't be scared. Don't cry. Don't worry. Thank God for everything. Forty-something thousand people have watched this video. Tertullian, he was a Christian writer and theologian around 200 AD. He said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And you see that, just that little video. One man's faithfulness, and he wound up being beheaded about three weeks ago. One man's faithfulness. It's, in, it's encouraged tens of thousands of people. The faithfulness of the church is effective in drawing people to Jesus. You've been inspired by that. You've known people who stood firm on their convictions, even when it costed them. Even when it cost them. I just made up a word. This is brutal. Uh, even when it cost them, they've stood firm on their convictions. And that encourages you. It causes you to kind of sit up and take notice. That's one of the primary ways the church grew for the first 300 years of its existence. There was, a, uh, during that time, many of those years, everyone was required to worship Caesar, to take some salt, make, throw a pinch of salt on this altar. And the Christians, in, by and large, wouldn't do it. And nobody understood. It's like it's a pinch of salt. Just cross your fingers behind your back if you don't mean it, but just, just do it. And they wouldn't. And, the, and the, the result of that oftentimes... They were thrown in an arena with lions and mauled, or they were thrown in an arena with bears and mauled. They were killed publicly. And the way they died caused people who were hostile to God to say, what is it about them? And what is it about this Jesus whom they serve that they're willing to do that for him? We're, again, we're Bible Belt 2020. None of us are getting our heads cut off. None of us are getting kidnapped, and none of us are getting thrown in an arena. But the, the challenge and the invitation for us is the same, to remain faithful witnesses, to grow into the kind of people that if there was ever a chance, if there was ever an opportunity for us to deny our faith or to walk away from Jesus, we, we would be the kind of people who would say, no, regardless of the cost, I'm remaining faithful to him. Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. That's the beginning of Lent. Lent's 40 days leading up to Easter. Traditionally, it's a time of fasting in the church, the 40 days corresponding to the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness. You don't count the Sundays, just uh, Monday to Saturday. And as a church, we have, have tended to fast during uh, Lent as well. And I want us to do that again uh, this year. And I, I want to give you maybe a, a connection point, a way to see fasting in Lent through the lens of Revelation 11. What does it mean for us to be faithful witnesses, again, and to grow into those kinds of people, to have the kind of roots that if we're ever squeezed or when we're squeezed, whatever that happens to look like here in Marietta, we stand firm 
and we remain committed to Jesus. When I think about becoming that kind of a person, becoming a faithful witness, there's two dynamics in my mind. One is desire, and one is discipline. One is desire, and one is discipline. And I think they're both important. They complement one another. So as we enter into this period of fasting, just to make sure we're all on the same page, fasting is voluntarily giving up food as a spiritual discipline. Fasting is not dieting. Dieting is giving up food because you want to lose weight. Fasting is giving up food because you want to grow spiritually. Does that make sense? Not the same thing. So fasting is, again, it's voluntarily giving up food. Some people give up certain types of food, like I'm going to not eat dessert or I'm not going to eat chocolate. Some people give up meals. I'm not going to eat breakfast Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Some people fast for longer periods of time, 24 hours or 36 hours or 48 hours. All of those are great. Some of you have a medical condition where you can't fast, and that's okay. You can participate in Lent through abstinence, abstaining from certain activities, social media or TV or something like that. It's perfectly legitimate. If you medically can't fast, and I certainly don't want you to hear me saying that you need to. There there are different ways, again, of of participating in Lent. So thinking about Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, beginning of Lent, through this lens of Revelation 11, desire and discipline. Desire to me is is fundamental. It's It's the place where I would love to see us directing our hearts during the six weeks of Lent, uh, Throughout the, the Bible, we see this, this word about spiritual hunger. As a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Uh, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be feel, filled. And, and when I think about me, and I wonder about us, am I really hungry for Jesus? He's nice, for sure, but do I hunger for him? Do I thirst for him? Where we live, super easy to become apathetic, to become casual in our relationship with God. We, we just forget who, we forget who he is. He kind of becomes our buddy, and he's, again, there when we need him, and he's okay if we ignore him when we don't. And none of that is intentional on our part. It's just a reality where we live, and again, that apathy, complacency sets in pretty quickly for us. And Lent can be a time of resetting and say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. That's not all right. I want to hunger and thirst for you. I want to be able to say, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. I want to be able to say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I want to be able to say that, not just repeat it. I want to mean it. And so I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to stir that hunger within me. And fasting is a physical way of kind of triggering that in us. It's not magic, but it's a physical expression of what we hope to be a spiritual reality. So if, you, uh, so if this is you and you're thinking, yeah, I'm not really hungering and thirsting, and I would love to see a deeper level of hunger and thirst for the Lord in my life, and then so you want to set aside Lent as a time to do that, those 40 days, I would say give up something that will make you hungry. Like, give up a staple food. For me, I just love vegetables, and so I would, I'm gonna give, I would give those up. I wouldn't. That would not make me hungry. It would just make me happy, which is not what I'm, that's not, so I'm gonna give up meat. I'm not gonna eat meat for six weeks, which for some of you, that's not a big deal. 
it will be a big deal for me. You may want to give up a meal. I'm not going to eat breakfast. Or again, maybe you want to fast for an extended period of time, maybe even 24 hours. You can, you're not going to die. You'll think you're going to die, but you're not going to die. I promise you got enough in reserve. You can do it. But you're going to be hungry. And when you're hungry, rather than looking at your watch and going, when can I eat again? Or rather than trying to figure out how you can rationalize eating right now, what you want to say is, I want to allow this physical hunger that I feel to trigger my heart to say, God, this is how I want to feel this way for you. Just as much as my body pains become a reminder to pray, to seek him first. It's a reminder that we don't live by bread alone. It's a reminder that when we feed on Jesus, we'll, ne- we'll be satisfied. We'll never hunger again. If we drink the water that he gives us, we'll never thirst again. Again, it's not magic. It's just, it's a tool that God has used through centuries. And so we're gonna, we, we pick up the tool and trust him in faith to use it in our life. And I would encourage you, again, if you're saying, I would like to hunger for God at a deeper level, then make yourself, make a choice to be hungry physically during the time, during Lent, whatever that means for you. If you, ne- if you don't eat breakfast now, then don't, you're not fasting breakfast. You're just doing what you always do. Pick something that for you will trigger hunger physically, recognizing like it, it, you're not going to love it. You're going to be hungry, but that's okay because it's, again, it's for you, it's a physical expression that's triggering this spiritual impulse to say, God, I want to hunger and thirst for you in this same way. The other side of the coin is denial. And when we think of fasting, that's what we think about. And it can get really negative really fast. That's why I like desire first. Denial can become really self-righteous and legalistic. But there is truth there. There is some truth there. Paul talks about having, you know, training his body. And honestly, most of us spiritually, we're pretty flabby. We don't spend a whole lot of time telling ourselves no. We may tell our kids no, but we don't tell ourselves no very often. We kind of, we get what we want when we want it. And there's something to intentionally telling yourself no. Not necessarily, not sinful things. You should be fleeing from those anyway. But things that you just enjoy, indulgences or or luxuries. And if that's you and you're thinking, man, I'm kind of spiritually flabby. Maybe what you want to do for Lent is give up something that would be for you an indulgence. Give up dessert or chocolate or give up coffee or the the fancy drink. Give up wine with dinner, whatever it is for you. Again, not saying those things are sinful, but just as a way of saying my body's not the boss of me. God, I want to submit all of my desires to you. I want to be led by your spirit and not driven by my appetites. And then again, when you intentionally are giving that thing up that you enjoy, it may, you, you probably won't be hungry necessarily, but the act of giving that up will remind you, oh yes, oh yes, I'm submitting myself to the Lord. I'm training myself to say no to my desires, not because all of my desires are wrong, but because I don't want to be driven by my desires. I want to be led by the Holy Spirit. So if there is ever a time where I need to say no out of faithfulness, I've actually got some practice doing that. And so I, I would encourage you, take one of those two routes. Think about, is this a, a time for you? You say, you know, I really want to hunger and thirst for the Lord at a deeper level. Or is this a time for you to say, you know, I'd really love to live with a greater measure of self-control to move accordingly? I, and I would encourage you to share with a couple of people what you're going to do and why. Accountability is great. Particularly, uh, you're, you know, six weeks is kind of a long time. 
and you're going to hit a wall. And then if you're like me, then you start looking for loopholes. One time uh, I said, I'm only going to eat things that grow. That's what I said for Lent, which was stupid, but that's what I said. And so when I hit my wall, I started saying, well, you know what? Cows grow. They do. They get bigger. Wheat grows, and these Cheez-Its are made from wheat, so I can eat those. I I I could eat anything but a peep by the time I was done, justifying myself. Not helpful. So maybe for you, share with just a couple of people what you want to do, not bragging, but just saying, this is, this is kind of what I want to give up, and this is why. And then they can just help you, maybe hold you accountable a little bit when you hit the wall. I would say for some of you, you feel like, all right, I got to do the hardest thing. Like, what's the hardest? That's what I'm going to, that's not the Lord. Like, just d- don't do that. Just prayerfully kind of move forward and say, all right, this is, this is something for me. Some of you are looking for the double benefit because you know Lent always coincides not just with the six weeks that lead up to Easter, but the six weeks that lead up to spring break. And so you're kind of thinking through how you can get a don't, I would say, push that aside as well. Just think about the spiritual benefit that you're going to get and not how good you're going to look at the beach in six weeks. And, and just, I don't think you have to have a word from God to participate. For me, it's just you kind of saying, hey, where, where's my heart and where do I want to grow? And then you just try something. It's, again, prayerfully and thoughtfully and faithfully, you just try something and, and, and engage. For some of you, this has got all, like, all kinds of religious baggage and you're feeling guilty and you're an ought and a should and a have to. This is all voluntary. God doesn't love you more because you fast and he doesn't love you less because you don't. Historically, this is one of the tools that God uses to minister his grace into our life and to make us more like Jesus. So that's all we're doing. Here's a tool that for 2,000 years has helped Christians grow, and so we're going to use the tool. That's it. And so I would encourage you to participate in whatever way you feel led. All right, here's how we're going to close. We're going to take communion. You're going to come forward a row at a time, break off bread, and dip it in the juice. I know we're running late. Um, we, we have five minutes, the Pathfinder's nose. And then this is gluten-free communion. You can grab it, uh, grab that and dip it in this bread uh, if you need that, if that's better for you. And this is the way I want you coming forward for communion, if you wouldn't mind closing your eyes. If you're helping, you guys can go ahead and get in your spot. So communion reminds us that Jesus is our sufficiency, that he meets all of our needs and all of our desires. Ultimately, all of those things find their fulfillment in him. And communion is a tangible reminder of that reality that's so easy for us to forget. So if you're willing, I would uh, ask you to pray this prayer just as you prepare your heart for communion. Holy Spirit, would you convict me if I'm chasing after anything more than I'm chasing after Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you convict me if I'm looking to anyone or anything to meet a need? that can only find its fulfillment in you. Sometimes those things are sinful practices. We chase after it's alcohol or it's pornography. Oftentimes those things are good things that God has given to us that we uh, then prioritize too highly. It's It's a particular relationship or... You know, maybe it's something like success. 
If the Lord brought something to your mind, just acknowledge that before him. God, I confess that I'm chasing after this thing. I'm hungering for it more than I'm hungering for you, and I pray you'd forgive me. I acknowledge with my mind and my will that all of my needs are met in you, Jesus. And I also acknowledge that I don't always live according to that truth. And I'm asking for you to help me to do that. And I pray as I come forward and take communion that that would not just be a physical act either. That spiritually, God, that would be you ministering into that need in my life. Meeting that need. Fulfilling that desire. God, my prayer for every student and every adult in this room is that over the next six weeks, each one of us would grow in our hunger for you. Wherever we are right now, when we gather back together on Easter Sunday, we would all be able to say with integrity, I'm I'm hungrier for Jesus now than I was on February 23rd. Whatever that means in terms of fasting, that's you would lead each one of us, but I pray that would be the end result. God, I pray that every one of us would be able to say, I'm living led. More of my life is under the control and the direction of your spirit. I'm not being driven by my appetites, driven by my desires any longer. They're all, they're under submission to you. Again, whatever that means for fasting, you would lead each of us. But I pray that would be the result. And God, I pray even as we engage in Lent and are praying for our own hunger and thirst to increase, God, I pray for people that we love that you would bring them to mind during the next six weeks. And as we're praying for our hunger for you to increase, we would pray for theirs as well. For those people who we love who are far from you, God, that over the next six weeks, they would hear you calling out to them. And if if whatever it means for us to be a faithful witness to them over the next six weeks, we would. And you would use us to draw them to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.